Well, greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is an open and shut episode with Susan C. Shea. Now, Susan is one of my fellow bloggers at Seven Criminal Minds, and when I got to finally meet her and talk to her, I was very much impressed with her for a variety of reasons. Uh, I'll let you discover those in our interview. I think they'll be self-evident, but I will say that uh, she is the author of a couple of different series. One is a mainstream mystery series, and the other, I think you could safely classify as cozy. We're going to find out how much of herself went into those stories and how some of them came into being. But first, I need to let you know that Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. If that sounds like something you'd like, you can go to their website, downandoutbooks.com. That's Down and Out Books, all spelled out. Dot com down and out books take the journey with us so i am sitting here in central oregon in late november having completed the interview with susan a few days ago cold 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 and and sunshine is out uh, on this crisp morning uh, i don't wish the cold upon you but i hope the sun is shining where you're at uh, it was certainly shining when <laughs> in uh, northern california where susan was when we spoke so let's dive right in and learn more about susan shea well hello susan and welcome to the show thank you frank it's a real pleasure to be here uh this is actually the first time that we've talked in person uh well i mean you know sort of in person live anyway but uh it's not the first time that we became aware of each other well i know because we're both on our seven criminal minds blog together so i get to read what you're thinking about every other week and you get to read what i'm thinking about this week is actually a pretty funny subject well the the challenge to us was to write the worst possible pitch for a crime fiction book that we could think of. And I had so much fun with that. I just went to town on this one. I, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, it's pretty hilarious. I recommend people give it a quick read. It's also very short, so you, very can, short. you can read it. With pictures. <laughs> yeah, you can read it and not even be done with your coffee. Um, that's true. Uh, it, whatever coffee you may you know, like spit onto your screen as you read. But uh, <laughs> that's at 7 Criminal Minds with the number 7, 7criminalminds.blogspot.com. Jim Ziskin uh, recommended me be admitted to the club uh, uh, a while back uh, there are the entire spectrum of mystery yes. writers on this, everything from the hardest edged, hard boiled through, you know, more general fiction all the way to the cozy end of the spectrum are all represented there. And so it's kind of neat to see the different perspectives from the different authors. Um, you, you really have two uh, series to, to discuss, and I, I'm going to go in chronological order unless you object. Um, and, and so the first series is a series, uh, that's, uh, subtitled a Danny O'Rourke mystery, all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess a good place to start is who is Danielle O'Rourke? Um, she is a character who is, of course, totally made up, but I did, I was my first one and I stuck to the advice of kind of writing what you know. She is a fundraiser for an art museum in San Francisco. Now, I was a fundraiser, not for an art museum, but I worked in San Francisco in the Bay Area for a long time. So I took that uh, as a place to start in building this character. Unlike me, she used to be married to a very wealthy man 
who had $450 million of pied-à-terre in Paris and two Porsches. He also had a roving eye. So now they're divorced and she's rebuilding her life uh, without him. And he is a funny character. He wasn't going to be in the books. He was going to be part of the backstory. But he walked into the first scene in the book, in the first book, which was called Murder in the Abstract. He simply walked in off my fingers and into the story. And I realized I couldn't get rid of him. And he's so (laughs) funny. He's a real foil for her. And, uh, and, and, and his, his name was Dickie, Richard, but Dickie. So it was Danny and Dickie. And at, at one point I thought about making them a Nick and Nora, but actually, um, he's more fun as he tries to persuade her over and over to come back to him. And she is adamant that she's been burned once. She's not going to do it. So there's that that's at play through all the books. Their relationship changes, goes up and down, but changes through the, through the three books in the series. And gives her a chance to grow, and it gives me a chance to see her growing and dealing with this situation. And then there's, of course, the crime story, too. So the characters have an arc, and the crime has an arc within the single book, but the character arc is through all three of the stories. So you would say that uh, Danny, she she's an art consultant, an art expert? No, she's a fundraiser. Oh, she's strictly um, but, a fundraiser. Okay. Yes, but she knows a lot about art. She knows a great deal about art because she has to raise money from people who support the art museum. So she's very, very well versed in it. And her interest and mine are the same. All three crimes have to do with the secondary art market. You know, we've all seen what happened um, in the early 2000s. The price of a Picasso, let's say, went from $25 million to 125 million almost overnight and there's a, there are reasons for that that now people know more about but they didn't at the time um, and that was in part because of the amazing amount of illicit money that came through the auction houses as a way to launder money wow. and when Switzerland closed down its um, anonymous bank accounts the United States won a, a legal fight to be able to follow people who had uh, Swiss bank accounts. And the money came pouring out of the Swiss bank accounts. It was Imagine and that. they had to put it somewhere. <laughs> and what what would be better than going having a neutral person or an anonymous person go in and bid on a painting and they'll happily pay sixty million because that's sixty million dollars that you've laundered just like that. You know, art plus money equals crime is the theme of my three <laughs> stories. Each one each one is a different kind of crime. But it's based on this this concept. But my stories are not they're not serious. They're not uh, they're not cozies, but they're witty. And one of the nice things about the professional reviews I got is that people, the writers talked about the wit and the humor Mm -hmm. in them, because what the heck? You have to laugh, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and everybody reads for different reasons and for different kinds of escape. And, you know, if they want a little comedy with their mystery, that doesn't surprise me at all. It's uh, pretty common. Right. Um, so essentially, Danny, to raise money, has to be able to talk the talk and know the lingo and be educated on, on what's going on. Yes. And she has to be able to deal with very rich people. And I did a lot of that. That's a frankly, skill set unto itself, right? <laughs> a, it is a real skill set. And I did a lot of that in my work, dealing with millionaires and billionaires. And so that adds to both, I have to tell you, as someone who's out of the business out, adds to the humor to a great extent. I mean, I think I got a little cynical over time 
Um, but there are three books in the series, Murder in the Abstract, The King's Jar, and Mixed Up with Murder. And in each one, she winds up being pitted against a truly entitled, uber-rich person who, in spite of having all the money in the world, is still trying to wangle more. Trying to and, chisel her, huh? Yeah. And, well, not her, but just trying to chisel somebody else. Mm-hmm. And and so she, she gets in, involved in, in all of that. And she's swimming around in this wealthy people's universe, even though she's a staff member. She's not one of them. And I think that's one of the things you learn as a fundraiser, as I did. You can have lunch with a billionaire. You can have happy hour or something like that, but you're only staff. So it's a caste system of sorts. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, these fall into the mainstream mystery slash mystery light comedy subgenre. Would that be fair? They do. They're, um, I, I resist the cozy label in part because of where cozy has gone. You know, there are no talking dogs. There are no recipes. There are no cupcakes. I don't know. No puns, you know, <laughs> something like that. It's, it's not, it's not there. It's, a, it's really more of a traditional mystery, but it's modern. And, um, that series has a slightly light tone. It's not funny, haha, but mm-hmm. it's, but it's not, it's not heavy. And there's, and there's tragedy in it. People die. So it's a good mystery that will cause you to have a wry grin or a light chuckle uh, as you turn the pages. Yeah, and you might learn something a little bit about um, the art market. It's you know it's not heavily heavily focused on the art; it's on the crime. But I think uh, a lot of people have told me that they really love the chance to just see a little bit of why art plus money equals crime. Yeah, I think people actually do like to learn things. They just don't like necessarily to sit in a classroom to do it. So, Or be preached at or have things, mm-hmm. you know, no data. There's no d- data dumping in my books. Obviously, then, Danny inherited some of your knowledge from your personal experience in this series. Yes, and also Danny had experiences that I didn't have, obviously, because I was not mixed up with any murders. <laughs> but um, Danny pursued some of these things in a way that I didn't, couldn't. And certainly, I, I there were a couple of characters in my three books. There's one character in each of the three books who is based on a real person. The first one is a bad guy who actually, my husband was an artist, a practicing artist for a long time, very well known. There was one man who was a thorn in his side all the time, all the time. And fine, one day I came home and Tim was grumbling about this guy. Why won't, you know, he just won't accept that we're going to do this this way. And I said, sweetheart, I'll kill him for you in a book. <laughs> and that was it. I mean, that was Danny's first thing. So there I, he went. I saw a guy on one of our, one of our fellow writer friends, I'm sure in yeah. common, with a t-shirt on Twitter the other day that said, be nice to me or I'll kill you in one of my novels. So. <laughs> I actually have a friend of mine gave me a sweatshirt with that on it. And I, I used to wear it right side out and I had to explain it constantly. So now I wear it inside out. <laughs> it's just closer to your heart that way. <laughs> yeah, right. So the second book has a real character, actually two real characters um, who were a thorn in my side and in some of my clients' side who, uh, who had to be dealt with in my books in a way I wish they had been. <laughs> Not really. I don't wish them dead, but one of them suffers a social uh, issue as a result. And then the third one, the bad guy in it was a man I met. And one of the reasons I'm coy about where I used to work 
he was on the board of, of a university I worked for, and he is a man who actually inspired um, an investigative article. He's still, by the way, very strong and very, very prominent. An investigative article in the San Francisco Chronicle in which someone alleged he was a, what was it, a, a snake, but I've forgotten what the whole term is. And I just thought he was too great a character, and I did meet him. I met him at all the board meetings because I was... I went to the board meetings and um, snake in the grass. That's what the that's what the, they said. They said that about him. I didn't say that about him. the Chronicle did. And so he was just too tempting because I could see what he looked like and how uh -huh. he moved and uh -huh. how he behaved. And I knew some of his history and I was just too good to leave out. Well, that's what we do, right? Is is pull from yeah. the world around us, whether it's inside our heads or outside of our being, which actually segues nicely into the other series because. Uh, this series um, takes place in France. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, if I were guessing, I would guess that's because you must have a some sort of a connection or or, or love for, for French culture or for France in particular. So, yes, um, the series of it's only two. And I'm sorry, it's only two. I frankly, I'll be honest about it. Um, Minotaur did not give me a new contract for after the two. They sold well enough, but they didn't. I didn't hit the jackpot. You know, I wasn't Louise Penny. I wasn't one of their big stars. But um, Love and Death in Burgundy was the first one. It was set in the summertime. And Dressed for Death in Burgundy is the second one. And it's set the two weeks, ten days before Christmas. Mm. And I had hoped to write more of them because I love the characters. Um, I really do. I love these characters. And I loved writing it. The first, uh, the books feature... A couple, uh, they're middle-aged, they're sort of, they're happily married, and they're based on two people that I know really well who used to live here in Northern California where we became friends. She was an artist like my Tim was, and that's how we met. And uh, she and her husband, they wound up selling everything they had here. And they didn't have a lot, they weren't wealthy and moving to rural France, to this little house in this hamlet. It isn't even a village. It's so small. <laughs> it's a hamlet. <laughs> a hamlet is what it is. I mean, it's a crossroads. You know, there are a lot of them in rural France where there was always a little church, and uh -huh. there are a handful of houses and uh -huh. farmhouses clustered around it, and that's it. There's There's nothing. There's no cafe. In my book, there's a cafe because I needed it, but... But at any rate, um, the only th the reason they wound up there is because it was within 20 kilometers of the express train, the TGV, that would take her to Paris so that she could go to um, to the, and go to the museums. I went over to visit them after they were there, and I I learned a lot about how they were fitting in or not fitting in to the local society. You know. A hamlet like this, a tiny place, there may be 50 families, maybe 60. And a lot of them have been there multiple generations. They don't like to sell to outsiders, although they're beginning to do that because their kids, they're farmers, and their kids leave and want to go to the big city. And so there are these old people who live there, and they're rigid, absolutely rigid in their social milieu. So here comes Alice and David. Alice with her wonderful French and her eccentricities as an artist, and David, who is a musician. And they, the people in the village decided that David was a well-known rock and roll star who was, you know, incognito. 
And he wasn't. But he had that sort of glamour, I guess, about him. And so that was the source. That was the inspiration for this for this book because it, every, I visited him quite often. And it was just wonderful to see, to meet the people in the hamlet, to see how they behaved with each other. You know, they think Parisians are outsiders. So what do you think they're going <laughs> to, how do you think they're going to treat Americans? I can't tell you how much fun I had writing that book. I absolutely loved the characters. I got, I was so thrilled. I got a review in the New York Times um, from Marilyn Stacio in, in her crime column. She picked a couple of the characters that I absolutely loved creating to mention as being really, you know, lovely characters. Oh, that's fantastic. So there's a fish out of water sort of oh, yes. element to this. Do you speak French? I do. My French is not very good, although my pronunciation is good. My vocabulary is fine for the simple conversations. But if somebody wants to start talking about uh, how they have to get their roof repaired, I'm at a loss mm -hmm. because I don't know any of those terms. Mm -hmm. um, but I but I do. I love France. I really do. I, I'm, I guess I'm a Francophile, but I'm also a I, I like traveling. But I, I do love I do love it. Yeah. It is a very unique nation. It has very much has its own character and it's retained that despite, you know, the shrinking of the world and the, the yeah. EU and all of that. Yes. And of course, that's that the French are very prickly about keeping their culture. And my stories are set in the farming part of Burgundy. And because I, as it happens, I don't drink. I decided not to try to talk very much about wine because I would be over my head immediately so i <laughs> i got news for you if you start drinking wine you end up over your head too just in a different <laughs> way <laughs> uh, well so the danny o'rourke mysteries is is one series and the french village mysteries is the other are you working on anything else i am i started an, an a sort of an ambitious novel uh a while ago about world about world war ii and my agent really loves the idea. And I really love the idea, too, because women came, American women, came into their own in World War II with a lot of the men sort of gone off to war or busy on particularly war-oriented things. There was all this professional opening for women. So I, I wanted to write about a young woman who comes of age and is able to move into this professional world and I, I'm enjoying it. it. It isn't a mystery, although I'm, I'll tell you honestly, I like the structure of crime fiction mysteries. And I'm struggling a little bit to find the rhythm for it. So I'm, I'm having a little bit of a problem with that. But I just started a new mystery. It would be a standalone. And I'm not saying much about it, but it's flying along. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. What can you tell me about that so that if somebody sees it on the shelf, they'll be like, oh, that's the one she was talking about? Well, um, it's the story of a man who is a, is a Don Juan. And if anybody knows opera, there is an opera. And this story is somewhat like the opera about the Don Juan who gets his comeuppance. Don Giovanni, the Mozart opera? Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, th that ought to be enough. Enough of a clue. You, you're being <laughs> fair with the reader here. You're giving them enough of a clue to figure it out when it. I don't <laughs> want to give them too much, but but at any rate, you know how long it takes Frank to get a novel at least eighteen months 
after before the book hits the bookshelf. So even though your podcast listeners are very loyal and wonderful, and I love them already, the idea that they would actually remember <laughs> that this by the time it gets It'll there, be in the back of their minds. <laughs> oh, no, I may be the only person who remembers it by that time. Well, uh, I've been wanting to get you on the show for a long time, Susan, ever since I came on the uh, Seven Criminal Minds roster, and I'm really glad that you made time for me. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure, Frank, and I'm glad to finally have a chance to talk with you, even if it's virtually through headphones. All right, folks, there you go. A really good uh, picture of Susan Shea. And, and I know that's pretty much the same verbiage I say after every interview. But, you know, people, when you interview them for even just half an hour, most of them, their true self shines through. And one of the great things about doing this show is I get to meet those people, some of them for the first time. And uh, by the end of our, our conversation, I literally feel like I've made a new friend. And that's a pretty cool gig, if you ask me. Uh, speaking of meeting new people, on our next episode, we are going to talk to T.K. Thorne. Uh, so that's next week on Wrong Place, Right Crime. Quick bit of Zafiro news for you. Nothing really new. You probably know this by now, but Code 4, the final book in the Charlie 316 series, is out. So the entire four-book arc has been completed. If you want to binge the series, you can now do so. And uh, I, I wrote this with Colin Conway. Easily uh, some of my very best work and, and his as well. Uh, obviously, you can get the books from downoutbooks.com, the sponsor of this show, or any digital or print uh, outlet that uh, you normally get your books from. All right. I want to say thank you to Susan for coming on the show and being a delightful person to talk to. I learned a few things. Uh, not all of it made it into the show uh, for time, but uh, very, very smart and knowledgeable woman and a fun interview. I hope you check out uh, her Danny O'Rourke series if, uh, if that's your bag or uh, maybe the French Village, uh, I guess French Hamlet <laughs> series if, uh, if you're more into the cozies. I also want to thank Down Out Books for being a great sponsor. And most of all, I want to thank you, the listener, for being here week after week. Please support the authors that come on the show by checking out their books, however you like to do that. Buy them, borrow them from the library, uh, listen to them on audio, whatever is your preferred method. TK Thorne next week. Until next time, this is Frank Zaffaro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. 